Amen. Man, I'm glad that y'all are here today. Y'all look great. Thanks for coming out, and I hope you're ready to hear uh, truth from God's Word. And, uh, you know, I, before we j- dive into this, I, I just wanted to say a f- few weeks ago we um, uh, received our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And um, we had set a goal of $4,000, and um, it seemed like it was a, a pretty uh, good goal. And uh, I just want to say, you know, God is so good and so faithful. Right. We received, um, are you ready for this? We received $5,947 for our, I mean, way to go, way to go. God is, I mean, you know, for us to exceed the goal by almost $2,000, um, we need to set our goals a little higher. But um, I'm just so thankful for what God was able to do in and through that. And, um, you know, this morning I want to encourage you in, our, uh, in the Word. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 4. And, um, you know, this, is, this uh, passage that we're going to look at today, we're just going to camp out there and kind of move through that passage. But um, it's one that um, most people, uh, most churchgoers, I would say, um, know uh, of the story of the woman at the well. Uh, the woman at the well in Samaria. And that's what's found in chapter 4. And you have this mountain of a story. And, you know, if you say we're going to John chapter 4, most people think you're going to be preaching on the woman on the well, woman at the well. And so then um, this, this, this story is kind of in the shadow of that mountain. But it's also a story of tremendous faith. And it's talking about a, a nobleman's son. And um, who, who, was, who was on the, the verge of death. And, um, you know, we've all heard um, stories about foxhole uh, conversions. You know, where, um, you know, somebody is, is on the front lines in battle. There's, there's bullets uh, flying, mortars are exploding. And in his panic, he cries out. He says, God, if you will get me out of here safely, I will follow you the rest of my life. And you know what? Many of those cases, the Lord answered their prayer. And the real test of a person's faith is not how sincere they are when they're crying out to God in the heat of the battle. The real test of faith is measured by what they do when the pressure is off. I mean, we all cry out in that moment of need. But what do we do when there's no pressure on us? And, and I think that's important, you know, will, will God forget, will they forget God and go back to their old ways or, or will they repent of their sin and, and trust Christ as Savior and follow him as their Lord after the crisis is over? You see, this, this applies to every one of us who has cried out in a moment of need in an emergency maybe. Maybe you or a loved one was facing a serious illness or health problem. You cried out to God and promised that if he brought healing, you would follow. Or maybe there was a financial crisis or the need for a job. Or maybe you were lonely and you were praying for a a mate, a spouse, or, or even a friend. Folks, the Lord just does not want us to cry out to him only when we're in a jam. Only when things are dire and, and, you know, and then the rest of the time we just kind of ignore him and, until we need him the next time. See, Jesus wants us to go deeper in our faith. He wants us to, to go deeper in our faith and to trust and to follow him 
because of who he is, not for what he can do for us. He has already done everything for us. And yet it's not enough for us. Somehow we, we think, you know, we, we'll, we'll just uh, put him on the shelf and wait until we need him. But this morning I want to walk together through this passage of scripture. And, and it, it, in that I want to point out some stages of faith. Some stages of this man's faith. And I want to submit to you today that we go through some of these very similar stages in our faith. And, and the Lord always wants us to move to the next level. He wants us to go deeper with him. And many times we get to a point where we're not going any deeper. And we stagnate at one of these stages of our growth in faith. Now in our passage we find a, a royal official, probably a, someone in King Herod's court, um, a high position there. His experience reveals these various stages of faith and the kind of faith that we should have and that we should experience. But before we jump in here, I want to pray for us. And let me just voice a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you did on the cross for each one of us. I thank you that we have been redeemed for all eternity when we confess you as our Savior and Lord. And Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would impress upon our hearts and upon our minds the things that you are doing in each of our lives. And, and Father, may we too see these, these stages of faith in our own lives as we go through this. Father, I pray that you would just be glorified. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would glorify the Son as the Son glorifies the Father. And I pray, Father, that, that you would receive all the glory for what you're going to do in this today. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin in, in chapter 4 of John, verse 46 and following. If you have your scripture and want to open up to that, we'll just camp out there. Um, and what I want to say is there, there's five stages to this faith uh, that I'm going to be talking about here. And the first one is what I want to call a beginning faith. A beginning faith. You have this man, when, when, when Jesus entered the city of Cana, um, a nobleman. Now, Cana was the city where Jesus turned the water into wine. And he had been off in Jerusalem. He came back to Cana, which is in Galilee. And um, he, uh, he, this, this king of, of, of the royal court, this official, approached him. And, and the actions of this man demonstrated what is involved in beginning faith. I mean, often we don't cry out to the Lord until we're desperate. Until there's something going on in our life, there's, there's a crisis going on in our life. And, and, and I want to say there was a desperate need. Uh, this man's son was at the point of death. Look at verse 46. It says, therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Cana, okay? And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Folks, these type of needs 
confront every single person. The kind of desperate needs that we're talking about, unfortunately, it takes a desperate need for many people to seek the Lord. But eventually, eventually, the severe needs arise. They come from things like accidents or illnesses or disease or suffering or death. And it strikes everyone. Everyone is dealing with something. The pain and the hurt in our heart from whatever is going on in our life. You see, it it strikes children too. No one is exempt. And according to Hebrews 9, 27, it says, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. See, the day eventually comes when everyone needs some help. Because severe circumstances, the circumstances of life are beyond anyone's control. It comes in like a flood. It sweeps our legs out from underneath us. And we don't know which way is up. We're in this storm. It's just going all around us. See, the report that Jesus had healed people in Jerusalem had reached this man's ears. No doubt, being a person who has resources and wealth, he'd probably been to all the doctors in the area. He'd probably, you know, used everything in his power to get healing for his son. But he heard about Jesus and learning that Jesus had returned to Galilee, the man immediately went and sought Jesus out and urged him to heal his son. His son was dangerously ill and the word imploring really implies repeated or persistent action. This request was not something that was casual. It wasn't, um, but, but it was very insistent. Lord, I need you to do this. And so there was, there was this coming to Jesus. This, he heard that Jesus was in, 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 in Galilee, so, so he left his home in Capernaum and he went there. And this man was facing this desperate situation and he went to the only person that he knew could help. And his name is Jesus. Notice he didn't go to King Herod. He went to Jesus. And this is what he had to do in order to come to Jesus. The first thing he had to do is he had to leave his son. He had to leave his son who was dying. The man knew he was going on a journey that would be, he would be gone for a couple of days, maybe many hours. And imagine the anxiety and the fear of walking away from his son on the deathbed. And he's walking away and with every step, he's second guessing, wondering if he's doing the right thing by leaving his son there. We've all been there. We've all seen situations where we felt the same way. We didn't know what to do, but we did the next thing that we thought we needed to do. I mean, I would imagine that he was wondering if he would ever see his son again. He had to travel almost a day's journey to reach Jesus. And imagine the the concern that, 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 that was gripping his heart. The fact that he persevered and kept on going, keeping his eyes on the hope that Jesus would provide the healing that his son needed. 
That shows that he had faith in his heart in Jesus. Notice this, he didn't even let his status keep him from Jesus. He didn't wrap himself up in pride. He didn't, he didn't allow what others might say keep him from Jesus. He swallowed his pride. He confessed his need in the face of all who might ridicule. And he went to Jesus. You see, God often uses the crisis in our lives to get us to seek him in ways that we never would have done if the crisis hadn't occurred. But you need to understand, seeking the Lord in crisis is not an automatic. Matter of fact, most people don't seek the Lord in crisis. Some blame God or they curse God or they grow bitter when the trials hit. And I would say and submit to you this morning that we should follow this man's example by seeking the Lord when trials strike, when things happen in our lives. And I ask the question, is there anything keeping you from coming to Jesus? See, Jesus knew that this nobleman was not seeking him because he wanted to worship him or even that he wanted to follow him for who he is. He wasn't a sinner coming for forgiveness and eternal life. Rather, he was like the soldier in the foxhole. Get me out of this jam. He desperately needed immediate help. And so Jesus' rebuke that we're gonna read in just a moment was directed both at the man but also at the people around. Because if you remember, this area of Galilee, Capernaum, Chorazin, uh, these, these cities were ones where Jesus could do very few miracles because of the unbelief. They were fixated on the signs and wonders. It was as if Jesus was the circus and he was coming and bringing his sideshow to town. Hey, everybody, grab your popcorn, grab your peanuts. We're going to watch Jesus heal somebody. That's their mentality. And he's saying, no, unless you see a sign, that then you will believe. But it's not about the sign, and understand that. Jesus wanted him to move from this foxhole to genuine saving faith. And we should learn that the Lord never rebukes us except for when it's for our good always for our good, so that we might grow in faith and holiness. Notice also that the man's faith at this point was quite limited. He thought, in his mind, that Jesus had to come with him to Capernaum in order to heal his son. That Jesus had to physically be there, and it never occurred to him that even if his son died, that Jesus could raise him from the dead. Never occurred to him. He went to get healing for his son, but it was a sin sincere faith, even though it was somewhat limited. He didn't try to convince Jesus that he's worthy of this miracle because he was royal official, because he had resources and wealth and money. He didn't take offense at Jesus' rebuke. He just cried out, sir, come down before my son dies. Before I leave this point, I'm, this is the longest of the, of the five, so you can relax. Uh, before we leave this point, even those of us who have believed in Christ as our Savior, 
We need to look in the mirror. All too often, we're just like this guy. We don't pray unless there's a crisis. We keep Jesus on a shelf, kind of like Aladdin's lamp. And then when we, when we need him, we, we pull him down off the shelf. We try to rub him the right way and ask for his help. And then after the difficulty passes, we put him back on the shelf and, and we get along with life virtually without him. But Christ desires us to believe in him for who he is and fellowship with him all the time. Amen. He doesn't want us just to seek him when we need something, when we're in that jam, but I mean, any father, mother, parent can identify with this. I mean, what if your child only talked to you when they needed money or wanted to borrow your car? Some of you are like, yeah, that's what they do. But the thing is, is, you know, it would be far better to hear, hey, dad, I love you. You're such a wonderful dad. It would be nice if they, if they wanted to talk to you at times just because they like talking to you and being with you, not because they want something from you. So he had this beginning faith. Moving on, the second stage of faith is a persistent faith. Look at verse 48. So, so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come, come down before my child dies. See, the reply from Jesus seems a little bit heartless to us. Seems like he's rejecting him. And Jesus seemed to insinuate that the official, like the rest of the Galileans, was only given an excuse so they could see a miracle. I mean, that's what Herod did. He, he loved seeing Jesus work miracles. And on the other hand, Jesus' words may express his hope rather than his exasperation. Because Jesus desired a belief characterized by dedication rather than amazement. He wanted a genuine commitment rather than to perform a cure. See, Jesus wanted this man's faith to advance to a, to a whole new level. To move from that beginning faith to this persistent faith. And Jesus wanted to teach this grief-stricken father that his word alone was enough. That's amazing. That his word alone was enough. Belief in his word was what was going to assure the request. Did you know that in Psalm 138 verse 2, it says that God has magnified his word above his name? He has a high priority on his word. And he wants us to continue in his word. Jesus' power at the nobleman's disposal if he would just believe him. But I want you to understand that belief comes before signs and wonders. Belief comes before. Faith comes before signs and wonders. See, miracles can only lead us to the word. 
I mean, John 5, just over a page in my Bible, John 5, 36 says this and following. It says, but the testimony, and this is Jesus speaking, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have... His word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent me, whom he sent. And really, the the point here is that the word, his word generates saving faith. Romans 10, 17 says that it is by, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. See, it's one thing to believe in miracles, but it's something else to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ and continue in his word. I remind you of the words of John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said this. He said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Folks, we gotta continue in his word. It is about his word. And it was a, it was a faith that arose from only this mental um, conviction, head knowledge, intellectual belief, Jesus wanted to take him to this next level of of persistence. And I want to say it was a desperate persistence. I mean, the man was in no position to argue, to even think about what Jesus had said. He was desperate. And the severe tragedy that had struck his life, he, he believed Jesus was the only one who could help him. And he was determined to get Jesus's help. And so he cries out, Lord, he he says, sir, come down before my child dies. I want you to notice two things here. Signs and wonders, in other words, the boy's healing, were not as important as believing in the words that Jesus said. A man's eternal salvation was at stake. And the man had to believe in order to be saved. And the man was helped because he persisted. Persistence is absolutely necessary in getting the Lord's help. You know, our persistence shows that we recognize and acknowledge our need. And that we believe God can and will help. See, here's the deal. If we quit asking, if we quit praying, it shows that we don't believe that God will answer. He came, he made his request known to Jesus and and Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. And then he says, well, come before my child dies. And verse 50, Jesus says to him, go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. And so what we see here is a a beginning faith, a, a, a persistent faith, and now a trusting, obedient, working faith. I mean, here the, the man has nothing to go on but Jesus' bare words here. And, and, and I love this because John reports the man believed the word, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. He just walked 20 miles. He just walked 20 miles to hear Jesus say, unless you see a sign and wonder, you won't believe, go, your son lives. 
It was probably a, a, just a few minutes of exchange. And it says he, he went and he started off. He, he turned around and he left. It's interesting that the Lord answers the man's desire, but he doesn't respond to his request. His desire is that his son be healed. His request was to come down to Capernaum with him. And here's a point in this. The man had to put aside his expectations of how Jesus would work and take him at his word. We think that it's got to be done our way if Jesus is going to do it. Jesus can speak the word and it's done. And you think about this, it's, it's like we, we, we want to put all of these expectations on how God is going to work in our life. And the reality is he works far more, far greater than we could possibly imagine. This is next level faith. Because Jesus granted his healing, but he refused to go to Capernaum with him. Now, if the father refused to return to Capernaum without taking Jesus with him, he would show that he did not believe what Jesus had just said. If he followed Jesus' order, he would be returning to his dying boy with no outward assurance that the boy would ever recover. I mean, he didn't see any proof of that. He was forced to make the difficult choice between insisting on evidence or exercising faith without tangible proof to encourage him. But I love that. You need to camp out. You need to underline that, highlight that, whatever you do. Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. He went. No questions asked. See, the idea of that this is an instantaneous faith in action, he believed immediately and he turned and he headed home to his son. See, he acted on his faith. Faith sees the unseen. I mean, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. In God's economy, believing is seen. Believing is seen. Both faith and obedience were necessary to receive the promise and, and the help of Jesus. But you see, there really is no faith apart from obedience. <laughs> Hebrews 5.9 tells us, and having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is given to all those who obey Christ. And in the Bible, to obey Christ means to believe Christ, and to believe Christ means to obey Christ. Let me put this in uh, our terms today. True faith of any kind involves a commitment. 
True faith of any kind involves a commitment. When you pop the tab on the Coke can and you open up that Coke and start to drink it, you're committing yourself to the belief that whatever is in that can is not going to be harmful to you. You may never even see the liquid itself. You know nothing about the person who made that batch and whether they wore a hairnet, whether they washed their hands, whether they wore gloves, whether they came to work with a cold, a fever, or even were on drugs. You have no idea what's inside that can. And you pop the tab and you begin to drink. That is a commitment. And you have faith that, that in the Coca-Cola bottling company that they ha have put the right thing in that can. Driving your car into an intersection is another commitment of your very life to the assumption that you believe, you have faith, that when you pull up to that intersection that the red light is shining for the other people. Because you can't see that light. You're hoping that the equipment doesn't malfunction, but it could. Even like our cars sometimes malfunction. See, true faith involves commitment. We live our lives by constantly making these type of assumptions, committing ourselves to them and acting on them. And anyone who thinks that they don't live by faith ignores the fact that they are constantly making such faith commitments. It's no different with Jesus Christ. He wants us to make a faith commitment in him. And we all get, you know, kind of weird about it. And we're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a committal kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not someone who likes to commit to a lot of things. Folks, it's faith that we are committing to, our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus told this man, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that he spoke, and he started off. See, Jesus has spoken a lot of words to us. And we are educated beyond our level of obedience. See, no person will obey Christ unless he truly believes Christ. See, we're going to live like we want to live, not like Christ says, unless we truly believe Christ. So the person who obeys Christ is the person who believes Christ. And the point is this, is that believing Christ and obeying Christ mean the same thing. To obey and to believe are the same act. Scripture emphatically declares that Christ is the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. As I continue forward here, fourth stage is a confirmed faith. I'm almost done. Hang in there. Look at verse 51. It says, as he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. As he was going down, he turned and headed home. He was in the act of obeying Christ when he received the news that his prayer was answered. But you see, both belief and obedience were essential in this. Look at how he confirmed the supernatural and the natural. He, he asked the exact hour the boy recovered. 
Then the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon, he wanted to be certain. He wanted absolute confirmation. And he was reaching for a stronger faith in Jesus. But remember, he didn't get what he asked for because Jesus didn't come with him to Capernaum. But what he got was far greater. What he got was far greater. And that's often the story of our lives as well. God's word tells us to do certain things, to live certain ways, so we do. And then we watch for results. We watch for those blessings. We do see results, but not necessarily the ones that we expected to see. But as we reflect on those results, we realize how short-sighted our expectations have been, but how gracious and wise our Lord has been to us in response to our need and obedience. See, the ultimate result is that our faith is confirmed by practical experience. What God says he will do, he will do. He will do exactly what he tells us he will do. It may not be the way we expect it. But if we can just open our minds for a little bit and let God be God, we will understand someday. It may not be today, but we will understand someday. Lastly, I want to say this. The, the fifth stage here is a witnessing faith. Verse 53 says, So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This man went home. His son was now living, and he witnessed to his whole house. He told them about the experience that he had with Jesus. He might have said, I didn't know for sure, but I took him at his word. And I I was kind of sad when I turned away that he wasn't going to come with me. And as I'm walking home, I'm wondering if this thing is even going to work. But there was a word of promise from Jesus. Go, your son lives. And the instructions that Jesus had given him, and when he relayed this to his family and to all of his household, it says they all believed. They committed themselves fully to Jesus as the Messiah. You see, witnessing for Jesus was not easy for this man. He was a very high-ranking court official in the king's court. He would have definitely been facing ridicule and persecution and maybe loss of position, maybe even the loss of his life. But his faith progressed to a witnessing faith. He loved Jesus for what Jesus had done for him and he wanted others to know how glorious Jesus' salvation was. Folks, we must start witnessing in our own households. Start with your immediate family. Do concentric circles of your extended family and, and, and relatives that live in other areas. But we've got to be witnessing to our own household. Let me share with you the two most embarrassing questions anyone can ask a Christian. When was the last time you led a soul to Jesus Christ? 
The second question is when was the last time you tried? I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up if they would. And I just want to conclude with two applications. First is this. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, then ask the Lord for the salvation of your entire household. Intercede for your family. We see all through the book of Acts where entire households came to Jesus. They were coming to a saving faith. It may not happen instantly with your family, but in the, the Lord has done, if he's done wonders in your life of saving you, then begin to pray for your family. Live out that God-transformed life in front of them. Let them see the love of Christ in you and ask the Lord of the harvest to save the souls of your family. And second, if you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you need to understand that you are under the sentence of death. Eternal separation from God. But listen carefully. Just as Christ instantly granted life to this dying boy by his very words so will Christ instantly give you eternal life if you will call on his name. See, you can't do anything to save yourself, but Christ can and will save you. The very last part of John tells us in John 20, verse 31, it says, these signs and miracles were written, they were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. I'm gonna ask if you would bow your heads with me for just a moment. In a little bit, just a couple moments, I'm gonna pray and we will begin a time of response. But I ask you these questions. Just think about these. How are you going to respond when severe times come your way? Who are you going to go to and put your trust in? Are you going to believe the word of God? Do you give up in prayer or do you persist in prayer? Are you growing in your faith? Does your faith lead to obedience? And does your faith lead you to be a witness for what Christ has done in your life? Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I thank you for...